Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the God in Hamilton podcast, where we explore spiritual themes from the life of Alexander Hamilton and the Broadway musical he inspired. Today, I'm really excited that we have Bruce Long with us today. Bruce has produced shows on Broadway, Off-Broadway, and on London's West End, where his productions have garnered four Tony Awards, two Oliver Awards, and has also collected 15 Tony Award nominations and eight Oliver Award nominations. Uh, Bruce is also the executive director of CETA, Christians and Theater Arts, uh, and in a theater license with Wedgwood Circle. He serves on the Dean's Advisory Council with the Alabama School of the Arts and is a member of the Artist Formation Group with the Brem Center at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's also an author. He has a book coming out later this year called The Problem with the Dot that you should look for. And uh, Bruce, I just want to thank you for being here with us today on the show. Hey, thanks so much, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Good to be so, here. So Bruce, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got your start in the world of theater. Yeah, so it all started in college for me. I, I was born and raised in a very small rural southern town in Alabama. And, you know, in, I would say in high school, I, well, I grew up in church, let's put that there, because, okay. you know, you know the rural South, you're going to do that. So I was <laughs> at church every time the doors were open, and I, I became a Christian very young age. But in high school, I felt God was kind of calling me to the ministry. Hmm. Now, when you're, again, when you're in the rural South, that really means you got basically two options, pastor and minister of music. So right, I was right. originally going to college. Uh, uh, short-lived though, uh, to be a, uh, to be a pastor. Oh, but, interesting. Um, you know, through that experience though, my, my, really my sophomore year in college, uh, I was in a religion class. We were debating transubstantiation, you know, this theological thing. And it got into a really heated debate and the guy in the front of the room threw an eraser at the guy in the back of the room. Oh, wow. and I had to dodge that eraser. <laughs> and I think probably in that movement, there was an epiphany like, Oh my gosh, this is not going to be what wins my friends over to Jesus. And, um, you know, I was into stand up. I mean, I'm dating myself. So all the big prominent stand up comedians, Seinfeld and and Cosby and Sinbad and all of these guys had their own television shows. And I just sure. realized, you know, uh, theater, stand-up comedy, these are ways that people kind of, or at least I was learning uh, culture. I was learning worldview. Those are not the terms I would have used at the time, but that's where it all started. And, and fortunately, providentially, I would say, this small Southern Baptist school in Alabama had started a theater department. And wow. I said, I'm going to do I think I'm going to do that because I think wow. if I can, uh, to, you know, to borrow your language and, and even some of my own language, a good story well told, you know, tells the truth yeah. and through truth, we shape culture. And so to that end, that's how I initially got involved with the theater. And then from there, grad school, and then into a number of different things through church ministry, but ultimately that led me to producing theater, you know, commercially and non in nonprofit organizations and educational theater and, and all, you know, in any manner possible. So I just love to tell stories specifically through the medium of theater, but any good story well told, I, I have a proclivity towards. <laughs> so yeah, yeah that's, I, I, I love that. And, and I really do agree with you, this idea. In fact, I've had a lot of conversations with people in the theater world over the last couple of years because of this book that I've written. And whenever I talk to people specifically that are in the theater industry, I've been telling them and encouraging them and telling them, when you tell good stories on the stage, you are doing holy work. You are doing spiritual 
work. Amen. You are transforming people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious from your perspective as someone who has, has had such a successful career telling stories on the stage as, as a producer and, and in, in other ways as well, what makes the theater such a holy place and why do so many people lack perspective that this is holy work? Well, I, I think first and foremost that theater itself is so powerful because it is the it's the the communal experience of the audience it is the communal and collaborative nature of the art form itself the actors on stage feed off of the audience the audience feeds off of the actors i think there is a distinct difference between watching stories on stage versus stories on film Hmm. or television or our mobile devices nowadays i think that there that that screen creates a a a real barrier uh to uh seeing another human being as an actual human being and when we go into the theater there's no there's no piece of glass between us there's it is 3d it is completely immersive of all of our senses and we see another human being and we recognize that as a human being and we begin to develop uh you know sympathy and empathy which is a key word here yeah. that we don't necessarily engage when we're watching something flat two-dimensional, even if it's larger than life in a, in a cinema. So I think that, I think that is in essence, you know, why I love theater and why I, I believe theater is, is more powerful, if you will. I also think, and well, I think we know that theater is a global cultural um, entity. Every single culture has some form of theater true of other mediums. And so I think there is a global component to the act of making theater that, uh, that we share, regardless of where we are uh, located geographically or within various regions or socioeconomic statures or ethnicities and nations and things like that. So uh, yeah, to me, uh, that's the beauty and the power of, of storytelling specifically through theater. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's, that's very insightful. Now, a lot of these conversations that I have on the podcast really are about the intersection of creativity and faith. And you sit in a unique position because you're the executive director of Christians in the Theater Arts, CETA is the name of the organization. Tell us about that organization and the work that you do there. Yeah, absolutely. So CETA itself has been around for uh, almost, uh, well, a little over 30 years at this point. Um, It was initially founded in the very late 80s, but really kind of came to life in the 90s as a a networking opportunity. I think um, perhaps your conversations with other artists will kind of bear this out, but I think the prevailing kind of... uh, thought process is that if you're a Christian and you're involved in theater, that you find yourself in something of a, of a no man's land, a DMZ, if you will. Um, you're not quite fitting into the church culture. You're not maybe quite fitting into the theater culture in some capacity. And so you find yourself in the middle there. And I think CETA was initially founded to help people who find themselves in those kinds of isolation type of situation to come together and realize, hey, we're all in this together. 
Now, I would say CETA itself grew and, and had its heyday as it paralleled the growth of what I deem church uh, drama ministry. Right. Really sure. kind of got its start, you know, through the Willow Creek movement. They utilized uh, drama quite extensively in their evangelism and, and um, sermon uh, topic uh, setups and those sorts of things. And so as that grew, I think the prominence of CETA grew. Um, but eventually, early 2000s to mid 2000s, uh, the internet really came into its own, specifically though, social media, uh, Facebook, mm -hmm. e-commerce, a million other different things. And so the, the original work of CETA began to be replaced by technology. And CETA in the mid 80s, well, no, no, excuse me, in the mid-2000s, really started to take on two different things. So I would say most recently, CETA hasn't been that prominent if you are outside of applied theater or the secondary theater, um, Christian theater area. So right. uh, middle school, high school, Christian education. So those are the two areas I believe where CETA has had prominence. We completely rebranded when I became uh, the the second executive director uh, of the organization in its history. And that all launched in January of 2020. Um, mm -hmm. We refined our, our, our purpose statement that CETA uh, cultivates environments that sustain uh, all Christians in theater arts. And so we're making a real concerted effort to break out of um, to expand our inclusivity beyond Christian theater proper, meaning overt Christian theater for evangelical purposes, and, and really start to identify the individuals who work in this space, all, not just actors, directors, designers, artistic directors, marketing directors, anyone who works in the industry from the Christian who is volunteering in their church for their arts you know, ministry to a bivocational, maybe I'm running a very small Christian theater company or a community theater company. And I have to kind of work two things to make that work all the way up to the, you know, Lord theater that's transferring work to the commercial stage or those artists who are involved with a commercial stage. We want to cover and minister to the needs of all of that. And we do that through the theatrical ecosystem, which is, thank you for the plug, and the, the, <laughs> which I talk about in my book, uh, The Problem with the Dot. I, I go to great lengths to identify what this theatrical ecosystem is mm -hmm. and the four components of that and how we as Christians, broadly, globally, uh, Christians need to reintroduce ourselves to this art form um, and support uh, this art form in creative endeavors, in our financial and investment opportunities, but also the individuals and treat these individuals who are artists, directors, designers, all these other people that I've mentioned before. All of these folks should be treated, in my opinion, like, you know, domestic and sometimes foreign missionaries by the church. And, yeah, I love and that. Uh, we don't always do that. I love that. Yeah, you know, again, as I've traveled and spoken about my book, uh, I've, I've come across so many people in the theater world who don't feel encouraged by their church, who don't feel like their pastor or their church understands them or the work they're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I work now at a, at a not-for-profit called The Culture House, where we, are, we have a conservatory of the arts program. And my boss has been in the creative world for 20 years. And he says that a lot of times 
what he's seen is that creative people have to either choose to pursue their creative passions or to pursue their faith and that their church doesn't give them space to do both um, yeah. at the same time. And that's just, I think it's such a tragedy. And I think the church is really failing a lot of creative people and their call that they have to go pursue their passion in a yeah. way. I mean, I love your language of like, it's, it's like sending out a missionary. It's sending people out into the world to tell great stories, to be light um, for a world that desperately needs it. So if you're a person of faith and you're listening to this, really check out cdead.org is that website. And I really encourage you to get connected with these guys. They're doing really important work and good work. So I think they'll be encouraging for you. Um, hey, let's, let's turn the conversation to Hamilton. And yeah. I know that you've seen it. Tell me about your experience. You have an interesting perspective as a producer, as someone who has a career in this world. Uh, what was your experience of, of seeing Hamilton? And how did you experience God in that story? Yeah, right. You know, uh, well, I'll talk about uh, I'll talk about my initial impression of the show coming uh, kind of into the market, yeah, if you will, uh, and then we can talk about some of my you know impressions with with regard to you know its uh, kind of spiritual overtones, uh, sometimes more overt, sometimes more uh, like a parable, if you will. Yeah, right. But um, I one of the, you know, it's funny, uh, you're probably familiar with this, since Hamilton has come out on, uh, was it Disney Plus or whatever streaming platform yeah, that it's on, right. um, there has been a trend in social media about man number one, um, John Rua, who kind of floats around and plays a, a number of different parts from the ensemble, and I thought that was fun to watch. Well, John yeah. was in one of my first shows, Hands on a Hard Body, um, and, and we kind of have gotten to know each other through that. And so when I first heard that he was involved in Hamilton, this was way back at the, uh, at the public days. And I, uh, I called him and anyone else <laughs> that I could, uh, to, to get a ticket to it while it was still <laughs> at the public, because you could just feel there. I mean, you could, it was visceral in the city. You could kind of feel this um, electricity, this attention that was being paid to this work. I mean, it was, I don't, I wouldn't say it was advertising and uh, yeah, word of mouth and all that kind of stuff, but yeah. you just knew, uh, you just had a, a, at least from someone who's kind of was working in the industry around it at that time, you just knew that this was special and this was something. And of course, public has a history of transferring things. So this was even before there was thought that this might you know, really transfer, though, I would argue that that was kind of always in the cards with uh, who was attached to the show and whatnot. Right. But all of that to say, I, I tried really hard to see it at the public and <laughs> I missed it. <laughs> and no. I consider that one of the great misses of my <laughs> life there. I have seen a million other shows oh, at the public or some other regional theater that was intending to transfer, had plans to transfer, did transfer but nothing, you know, like <laughs> that. And so I think we are all in agreement, you know, Hamilton is, you know, there's once in a generation kind of shifts in our storytelling as it relates to, you know, to Broadway, right? I mean, if you go back and you look at the golden age of Broadway, um, that was in the kind of the 40s, 50s, 60s, something specific. One, sp one particular show seemed to make a shift from one form to another. So back on up into Broadway history, you got Showboat coming out, I think, in 1927. And that's the first time that music, book, 
lyrics were all put together to tell a singular story. Prior mm -hmm. to that, it had been popular music being called or a show, I mean, a, a, a play that had had music added. Maybe it was original. Maybe it was a, you know, kind of a jukeboxy thing. But Showboat comes along and says, hey, we can do this. And so from 27 until 19, really 47, when Oklahoma came out, we were developing this art form. So you can kind of hit these benchmarks, Oklahoma, and then Hello, Dolly, and then West Side Story. Uh, many would argue that then Annie kind of closes out that last section of mm. the golden age. You move into the next phase of this 60s, 70s hair uh, kind of musicals, which gives birth to the, the pop opera and the rock and roll. Uh, starts, mm -hmm. you know, with uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber coming over with Starlight Express, Joseph, but certainly the big ones, Cats, uh, Les Mis, Phantom, those things. And then you move into kind of what many might consider the, the second golden age, uh, really in the, the kind of the 90s and 2000s, uh, all of this. But I would say that Hamilton specifically uh, signals another shift. I think it's a little too early to say whether Hamilton is the culmination of a second golden age or if it's just one of those middle markers like uh, say West Side Story was in the original golden age. Is this a, so that's kind of how I see Hamilton in context of Broadway history. It is seismic. It's, um, it's generational. It will be one of those that plays you know, for, you know, assuming COVID and other things like that don't truly interrupt this thing, but it'll be one of those long running musicals that are always referenced as a shift in the way uh, Broadway, maybe not produced, but in how Broadway tells stories. Um, with respect to the spiritual overtones, man, I don't know that I have anything to add that you haven't already said either in your writing or or other things that I've heard you say throughout time. I, I mean, I agree with you 100% that, and I would say that from my perspective, I would say Hamilton is not alone in being, um, you know, um, these modern day parables. Right. <laughs> I, I right. don't know that it's too much of a stretch to conjure up the idea that if Jesus were here on earth as he was 2000 some odd years ago, that rather than just telling us a parable on his walk, that he may actually be a theater producer. Uh. I would even argue to say he might even be a musical theater producer to tell these stories, these parables, these deep spiritual truths couched in something that everyone can relate to, that they right. can approach. Uh, I think that is the beauty of Hamilton. It's uh, it's hip hop, but it appeals and it's rap and it, but it appeals to demographics far beyond what you would initially conjure. And what that means to me is that people are approaching this art, this piece of art, and they are able to look and listen and reflect and take away from it what they will, which is ultimately what I believe Jesus was doing. And it is so much different than how the church approaches spiritual discipline and education, right. which is here's the sermon, right? Here's the three points, learn what we're teaching you and walk away, right? Apply it a little bit, 
yes, all that kind of stuff, but our sermons and messages, and I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm saying there's a place for that. But at the same time, we're telling people kind of what to think. And again, I don't think there's anything wrong with that when we're talking about the study of scripture. But when you're really talking about deep spiritual truths and you want to branch out beyond the quote choir, if you will, uh, something like Hamilton is, is exactly to your point, doing the job. Right. Right. Well, and I love that image of theater as a modern day parable. And, mm-hmm. and the imagination, right? The imagination is what makes it so powerful is that we tell these stories um, in ways that are maybe a different angle or a different slant that nobody's thought of before. And that those stories, C.S. Lewis has a great quote where he, I'm going to totally butcher it, but he basically talks about how intellectual information, we can build up these barriers and these walls to it. But, but stories can kind of come around the backside and they surprise us and they open us up to a motion that, that might not have happened. And so I love the idea that every time we go to the theater, we're engaging with somebody's imagination mm-hmm. and, and engaging with a story and a truth and an idea that then has the power to transform our lives and help us, um, help us live differently and help us live better. And I think that's part of the power in theater. And so maybe, um, maybe the question is, talk about the role of imagination in theater. Mm. Well, I think there is something nice about coming, and I think Hamilton does this really well. Um, I think the beauty of theater, even through the realistic kind of movement of uh, kind of the last, you know, couple hundred years, I think there's, you, you come back to something like a Hamilton, a very simple set. Um right. Right. I mean, we're not hyper realistic here. Right. At, at all. Um, I think you sit in that, you listen to it, and it really requires the mind to fill in the blanks. And I'm not just talking about the setting, but a, a, a number of other things. And so when you begin to, to allow the imagination to run and to interpret something like our founding fathers through costumes that are sometimes hyper-realistic in Hamilton, but also evocative of something far more contemporary. Yep. When you certainly uh, do non-traditional casting as they purposefully set out to do, it opens up the imagination to consider the founding of our nation, our founding fathers, their writings, our constitution, all of these things in a different light when you put the set up there that consists of this, you know, beautiful, really kind of just, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say generic in a pejorative sense, but generic wooden set that can right. be anything at any time. The effective use of that turntable and turntables within turntables. And then the very minimalistic use of props. Our imagination has to to fill in the blanks of all of these things. And when we engage the imagination, quite frankly, I believe that we're tapping into that component of us as human beings that are in the image of our creator. Yeah. You know, when I look at Genesis 1-1 and immediately I say, the very first thing our, our God does is he creates. And then he makes us in his image, which means that we are imaginative creators. That's right. 
Now, I also think that's what also plays into the beauty of theater, but in general, the arts is that we are most like God when we're able to create our little worlds. Yeah. The Hamiltons, the Wicked's, um, the Sunday in the Parks with George, but that extends into sculpture and, and painting and music and uh, dance, ballet, et cetera, so forth and so on. We create these little worlds and that's when we are most like our creator. And so for the audience who may be full of people who consider them non, themselves non-imaginative or non-creative, uh, what they fall in love with is that it does actually inspire them to be imaginative in their thinking. Yeah. And then they tap into that that very deep-seated core spiritual component of them where they start to feel the presence of God in their lives in the form of creation and imagination. And can we take them beyond that to start recognizing that as their God-like component and the need for God in their lives because of that? That's, that's part of the process. We talk a lot about that, or I do, and the, the problem with the dot. But I think that is the essence of of the role of imagination in theater specifically, but more broadly in the arts and why people need it and desire it because that's where we are most like God, if you will. Now I'd be, I'd also point out before I jump off this bandwagon and I'll, <laughs> I'll let you have your say <laughs> that there, there is creativity in a spreadsheet as well. Sure. Absolutely. And there is creativity in leading an organization, a church, a, 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 a company, a corporation, or something like that, there is a ton of creativity that we as human beings engage in the, quote, non-artistic components of our life. From raising a family to how we manage our marriage and, and family and other things like that, everything is a collaborative, creative decision, which is pointing back to theater. So I, I kind of take a very broad view of what our imagination is capable of doing and what our creative essence about. And it's not relegated specifically to those that we truly consider artists. Yeah. And I love, I agree with everything you said. And I love, I love how you put it. I love the idea that when we engage our imagination, we become like God. Mm -hmm. And tying that back to Genesis 1 and, and looking at God as a creative God. And then Genesis 2, where we see that Adam joins God in the creative work, where Adam mm -hmm. starts naming the animals. And, and the mm -hmm. very first thing we see humanity do is, is using their imagination to name and to mm -hmm. create. And I think that's right. I know in my life, this really connects to the project that my wife and I are working on. We're writing a musical right now. And um, it came out of a season in my life where I was pastoring. And my ministry wasn't going the way I hoped. And for about a year, I was at a very dark, depressed place and really discouraged that kind of my dreams weren't becoming what I hoped they would become. And in the middle of that, I, I'm a musician and a piano player. And in the middle of that, just out of nowhere, I got this idea of a family of dancing bears and a bear in that family that wanted to be the world's first singing and dancing bear. And then on the story of this bear that goes on this journey of breaking down all the barriers in the world that tell her that she can't sing, that bears can only dance and that the human world won't allow a singing bear. And as I was writing those early songs, it was the first time in a year that I felt a spark or a light or some sense of hope because as I was engaging my imagination, I felt like God was right there with me, cheering me on, creating with me and through me. And it was just a very, very fruitful life-giving season um, in my life. Do you have that same experience when you're involved in projects, that sense of God is using you and is 
and as a part of the journey that you're on and as a part of the project that you're working on and, and that sense of like feeling fully alive when that's happening? You know, I really, really do, to be quite yeah. honest with you. Yeah. Um, I, I, this is not uncommon among Christians to want to reference, you know, the the Chariots of Fire film, you know, and Little says, you know, when I run, I feel right. his pleasure. Right. I would say there is a direct correlation to my involvement in theater and mm -hmm. feeling his pleasure. You just, you're kind of, if we were a jazz musician, we'd say we're in the pocket, but yeah. it's truly yeah. when you just know, you just know that you're right in the middle of his will and things may not be perfect. There's always decisions. There's hard, you know, hard things to just, you know, to do. Uh, in the midst of making anything, really, theater, writing a book, there's always moments where it's discouraging and you kind of are stymied, but you don't want to get out of the, the pocket, so to speak, because even though it's hard, it's, it's preferable to pleasure and joy outside the pocket because the yeah. pocket's so sweet, you yeah, know? That's right. that's right. Yeah, I so, love Yeah, I, I would agree. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, that's great. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been so enlightening. I've been encouraged by it. I've learned a ton by it. Thank you for sharing your experience and your perspective with us. If you want to connect with Bruce, uh, certainly you can find him on the CETA website, Christians and Theater Arts, that's CETA.org. And again, if you're a person of faith and kind of living in the theater world, I can't encourage you enough to get connected with their organization. And then also be looking for his book, The Problem with the Dot. Tell, tell us, um, it sounds like that book is going to be released later this year, Bruce. Tell us, um, give us the subtitle and the name of the book and where we can find that here later this year. Yeah, sure. So the problem with the dot, the subtitle is a little heady. It's the a holistic approach to Christians' care and cultivation of global culture through the theatrical ecosystem. I'm going to break down the entire ecosystem and how we as Christians need to be re-engaging that entire ecosystem to have a global regenerative culture making. Love you it. can find that uh, eventually at the Whip and Stock. Uh, website, and I'm sure wherever books are sold. <laughs> so, Great. Well, it sounds like maybe a release date for later this year. So yeah, I'll put that on your, on your list of books to be reading. I, I can't wait to get a copy. It sounds absolutely yeah. fascinating. Um, Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. Hey, Kevin, my pleasure. Take care. Okay. And thank you everybody for listening. And we'll catch you next week on the God in Hamilton podcast.